Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we talk about the ideas and books that have shaped Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. This week, I have Dr. Elliot Grasso here to talk about Polybius's rise of the Roman Empire. Welcome, Elliot. Hey, Gil. Thanks for having me. I think at the outset, we should talk about when Polybius is writing, particularly because as we were discussing this, the fact that he says the Roman Empire, that has certain connotations in scholarly discussions. So could you clarify where he is historically and what his project is and what he means by the Roman Empire? That's a great question. So we could kind of divide Roman history broadly into three sections of time. The first would be the kings, traditionally from the founding of 753 BC with Romulus and Remus, up to 509 BC, where the kings kind of abuse themselves out of a job, and then the republic takes over, all the way up through the beginning of what we today as moderns would understand the empire, sort of with the beginning of emperors, which starts kind of sort of with Julius Caesar Mm -hmm. in the 40s BC, and then with Caesar Augustus in 27 BC. So Polybius is not in the empire proper zone where there are emperors. Polybius is a Greek writing back during what we today would understand as the Republic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Polybius is in the hundreds BC, something like that. Yes. And he is, when he talks about the Roman empire, if he doesn't have this specific period of time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we talk about as the Roman empire, What does he mean then when he talks about the rise of the Roman Empire? What does he mean by empire? Well, I think the word empire is coming from imperator or power or powerful one. So I suspect he's talking about the phase where Rome really starts to spread its wings and expand beyond the Italian peninsula and take over much of what's going to count for the rim of the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. So when he's talking about the Roman Empire, he's using this, he's using the term like we would say, like the Persian Empire or something like yes, that. Yes, yes. We might not have a specific period of time that's sort of like the Persian Empire in our, you know, in our timeline. Well, we might. But the important thing is he's he's thinking sort of geographically, mm-hmm. right? The, at some point, Rome comes along and it conquers a bunch of territory. Mm-hmm. And that's the Roman Empire that he's interested in. He's not talking about the form of government so much as he is the expansion of Rome's power. Right. Yeah. He's not talking about imperial rule with em- emperors, but like you said, expansion. I mean, he kind of touches on this as the project in the histories that he wrote. So Polybius wrote about 40 different volumes on the rise of the Roman Empire, as we're now going to understand that only about five exist in their fullness. And I have with me a volume of one of those. But he says in book one that the project that he's working on is basically this. And I'll quote, there can surely be nobody so petty or so apathetic in his outlook that he has no desire to discover by what means and under what system of government the Romans succeeded in less than 53 years in bringing under their rule almost the whole of the inhabited world in achievement which is without parallel in human history, end quote. So that's what he's interested in, Yeah. in part. So Polybius is interested in sort of tracing the rise of this unparalleled achievement in his time, of this conquest of the Roman Empire. 
But where does he think the Romans sort of start? So in a lot of political philosophy, even into the modern age, there's this idea of the state of nature. And Polybius mm. seems to also have this idea of the state of nature. Could you tell us a little bit about what Polybius thinks that is and what the consequences are? Absolutely, absolutely. He says in book six, where he talks about the state of nature, and I'll quote, and then we can talk about what he's saying here. Quote, what then are the origins of a political society, and how does it first come into being? From time to time, as a result of floods, plagues, failures of crops, and other similar causes, there occurs a catastrophic destruction of the human race, in which all knowledge of the arts and social institutions is lost. Such disasters, tradition tells us, have befallen mankind and must reasonably be expected to recur. Then, in the course of time, the population renews itself from the survivors, as if from seeds. Men increase once more in numbers and, like other animals, proceed to form herds. Because of their natural weakness, it is only to be expected that they should herd with their own kind, and in this situation, it is inevitable that the man who excels in physical strength and courage should lead and rule above the rest, end quote. So you have society sort of falling apart for various reasons. Yes. And the way that that gets resolved ultimately is by somebody being strong enough to come along and be a king. Yes. And everybody just gather around them and, mm -hmm. and you know, further their project of keeping people safe and helping protect resources as they're gathering food and so on and so forth. Yes. I mean, and the dynamic he describes in the rise of the Roman Empire is particularly interesting. So... It's sort of like there's there's chaos. One is wanting to survive, so it's heavily survivalistic. The majority is looking to someone who's physically strong and administratively savvy enough to get the needs of the majority taken care of. Mm -hmm. Those people, I mean, and this is a group small enough where people can observe one person's behavior. They can see this one particular person caring for their, their interests and making sacrifices so that everyone can survive together. And in so doing, the majority comes to invest their trust and their lives in this one monarch, as it were. So that sounds like a pretty good system, right? It sounds mm -hmm. like in the, in the immediate aftermath of the chaos, that seems like a pretty good way to end up surviving. Mm -hmm. What are the sort of drawbacks to that? Are there consequences to that system that maybe later on ends up not being what people want? Sure. Well, I mean, it... This devolves, so the monarchy would be the positive form of government. This devolves into a tyranny. It's interesting that in what Polybius notes is that this kind of majority of people are watching the monarch, they're watching his marriage, they're watching him have kids and rear the kids and teach the kids like, listen, kids, you know, you're going to take this over and you need to care about everybody more than yourself. So the majority observes him handing off the baton, mm -hmm. morally speaking, ethically speaking. So they're good with hereditary monarchy. What ends up happening is two to three generations after that, you have grandkids or great grandkids who sort of are out of touch with the original conditions that necessitated the monarch and have become further and further out of touch with what they owe the majority, what mm -hmm. the majority has invested, and they become sort of self-righteous and entitled mm -hmm. over time. So that's kind of like the breakdown of the monarchy. What comes after this is what's known as the aristocracy. So the mm -hmm. word aristocracy comes from ariston, which means the best. And essentially what you have is a bunch of 
very strong men who are kind of like at the king's side all the time, but watching his bratty, you know, grandchildren or great grandchildren make a mess of things. And so this group of excellent best men get together and say, okay, we're, we're done doing this. We're, we're taking this out. I mean, essentially, that's kind of what happens at the beginning of the Roman Republic in 509 when a guy named Brutus um, totally revamps the entire system. And so then you have another sort of ethically concerned, majority conscious now group of people, the aristocracy instead of right. the monarchy, right. the good aristocracy are sort of doing the sort of job that the monarch used to do before his great grandkid became a tyrant. Yeah. So you you know you start with this this king and in order for this king to sort of have clout as you were pointing out you have all these people who are sort of watching him mm-hmm. and you know helping him in this project and lo and behold when future generations of the monarchy sort of forget their place as it were there is a power that's competitive with the king and that's all of these people who have sort of been watching Mm -hmm. and so they're able to sort of take over so that seems like a good thing (laughs) right you have the a little bit more diffuse power right not not so easy for things to go wrong people interested in the good of the people taking over what goes wrong there (laughs) well ironically the same thing goes wrong there that goes wrong with the tyranny which is that all the aristocrats have great grandkids and they become disabused of their senses and the good of the general will and all that kind of stuff. And they start to abuse people and take advantage and become entitled and, and things of that sort, at which point you have what's called an oligarchy or a, an oppressive minority on a, on a majority mm-hmm. or a minority that's greater than one monarch. And so all the people are sort of watching this and they're like, well, we would fare, we couldn't fare worse on our own than if we get rid of these you know, these losers here right. who are not being very nice to us. So the people rise up as a democracy, demos meaning people. So the general people rise up and take over and start doing things on their own. And then things are going well for a while and people are voting and everyone's having a say and the majority is running the majority. There's no minority really anymore to speak of. And then, of course, some people rise up within the majority and start making abuse of power and things of that sort, and you devolve into mob rule, which brings you to a state of nature, which necessitates another monarch. Uh uh So in Polybius's way of seeing this, this is a cycle that sort of, it may be, you know, centuries that it takes for this cycle to repeat itself, but you start with chaos, right? And then you need a king to come along and quell that chaos generations later his kids are too big for their britches Mm -hmm. and the people who have been watching the king and being faithful to the project the king was sort of on they take control and generations later they get too big for their britches Mm -hmm. and so they are displaced by the the rest of the people but then the the power is so diffuse or there are people who see opportunity to sort of seize the reins of power or whatever that you get chaos again. Yes. So that's pretty bleak. <laughs> well, how, it, gets, how, it, gets, it gets bleaker. Oh, yeah? All right. <laughs> well, well, he says, he says, thus in kingship, the inbred vice is despotism. In aristocracy, it is oligarchy, and in democracy, the brutal rule of violence. And this is the best part. And it is impossible, he says, to prevent each of these kinds of governments from degenerating into the debased form of itself, end quote. So so you get, if you have 
a system of government that sort of fits into one of these categories, mm -hmm. it's inevitably mm -hmm. going to fall apart. According to Polybius, it is. Yes. Yeah. Does he think there? Does he think there's a solution to this sort of collapse that each of these forms of government go through? Yes. Well, I, I think he points at it in the state of Rome, and he's very interested in this. So, you know, what are we to do about this endless cycle of degeneration? He points at the Roman constitution in particular because it is a mixed constitution. You have the people, you have the Senate, and you have the consuls. So it's like the consuls are kind of like the monarchy, the Senate is kind of like the aristocracy, and the people are kind of like the demos, the democracy. And all of these three kind of parallel institutions within the Constitution kind of pull and tug on each other because they each need permissions from the other mm -hmm. to get the stuff done that they, they want to do. So we talk about this phenomenon now in sort of political science as something like separation of powers, mm -hmm. right? That the that that's that's a term that sort of comes into Vogue much later than Polybius, but it's sort of the phenomenon that that describes, that you have different locuses, different different groups that have power, and those groups sort of balance, hopefully, each other mm -hmm, out mm -hmm. as this, the systems are sort of pulling towards, towards the sort of degeneration that he paints in this cycle. So now we have a picture of... Polybius's sort of conception of the cycle that governments sort of inevitably go through as long as they're not mixed. And then his conception of how Rome is a mixed government. Why does he think that mixed government then contributes to Rome's success as an empire? Well, I think there's a couple pieces. One is that when you have different groups of power that have different life cycles, they sort of can't expire all at once mm. or destroy each other all at once. So it's like if you look at the Senate, I mean, basically you have a bunch of kind of more or less hereditary lifers mm -hmm. doing a thing. The people is the majority, this huge mass of two, three, four, maybe generations of regular Roman people who are doing a thing. And then you have the consuls, the two consuls who get elected for a year's term. So it's like part of the success of the project is that all the legs on the stool are of different lengths, mm -hmm. as it were. And so they're not all getting cut off simultaneously or, or replaced simultaneously. So it's very hard to just pull the plug on, on one thing to, to mix yet some metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, kind of a weird stool. If the, it's, yes. I mean, any, I, but in any case, what you're saying where, yeah, like it makes it difficult for everything to just kind of disintegrate at once. If yes. you have these sort of different, you know, in the American system, we have sort of different lengths of terms mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for different positions in the government. So it's sort of a similar kind of dynamic there. So how does this then contribute to their ability to sort of take over, you know, expand the empire? Well, sure. So the way that it works in real, real simple strokes, is that the consuls are in charge of the military. They're in charge of waging war. The Senate is in charge of paying for the war and approving other sorts of things of a financial nature. And then the people are in charge of making the laws and approving the laws. Mm -hmm. 
So one of the things that's interesting about the nature of being console is that as console, one of the things that you're interested in gaining once you've won the election to console is you want to gain this thing called dignitas, which is a kind of verbal immortality of things that people will say about how awesome your consulship was long after you're not the console anymore. You're going for the bronze statue in the piazza. You're going through your face, going for your face on the coin, this kind of stuff. And so what happens is that you have a bunch of consoles who are looking up and they're like, well, geez, what can I do to get me some of that sweet dignitas mm -hmm. before my term is up? Oh, I know. I can go win some military battles or I can go conquer this or overtake that. And that was a key part of their thinking for the consulship for a good couple decades, to say the least. And so it's pushing the consulship out to the rims of the, you know, the Republic, as it were, to gain land and therefore to gain dignitas. And at the same time, they're talking to the Senates, the lifers, and saying, you know, hey, help me pay for this stuff and you can have some dignitas too and talk it up to the people and we'll approve new laws that can integrate these new territories. And it kind of expands a little bit in, in that way. So the interest of each of the groups sort of feeds into the other. So they're sort of incentivized to work together. Yes, yes. So aside from those dynamics of sort of like, as consul, I want to be remembered forever. You know, I want to, I don't want to sort of be going against the grain of this great thing that we're doing. What other sort of factors or institutions are part of the Roman Republic that are important to this system running smoothly? So one of the institutions, of course, that is important in this mix is, is religion. At this stage between 200 and 118 BC, which is Polybius's lifespan, Rome is still primarily polytheistic. It's syncretistic. When they take over new territories, they integrate those gods and worship and, you know, make sacrifices to them and all that kind of stuff. So interestingly, I mean, this is almost like, like a, you can imagine Karl Marx sort of like paraphrasing this paragraph where Polybius talks about the role of religion for example, in the state and, and its function. Philippia says this, and quote, However, the sphere in which the Roman commonwealth seems to me to show its superiority most decisively is in that of religious belief. Here we find that the very phenomenon, which among other peoples is regarded as a subject for approach, namely superstition, is actually the element which holds the Roman state together. These matters are treated with such solemnity and introduced so frequently, both into public and into private life, that nothing could exceed them in importance. Many people may find this astonishing, but my own view is that the Romans have adopted these practices for the sake of the common people. This approach might not have been necessary had it ever been possible to form a state composed entirely of wise men. But, as the masses are always fickle, filled with lawless desires, unreasoning anger, and violent passions, they can only be restrained by mysterious terrors and other dramatizations of the subject. For this reason, I believe that the ancients were by no means acting foolishly or haphazardly when they introduced to the people various notions concerning the gods and beliefs in the punishment of Hades, but rather that the moderns are foolish and take great risks in rejecting them." End quote. So it's almost like Polybius is saying some modern people think that becoming irreligious is a boon to the society and to the culture and things of that sort. But Polybius 
He's always talking about finding the truth in history and how finding the truth in history has valuable kind of moral lessons to teach us about things of that sort. And so what he's saying is, you know, we need religion at some level to hem in the masses because without fear of transcendent powerful deities, you know, who knows what, you know, fresh hell they might unleash given the cycle of monarchy, aristocracy, democracy, and all the dysfunctional dyads that those have in between. So it's quite interesting how he is leaning on religion for some of that social cohering. So he thinks that the important truth there then is the society holding together and that the religion plays a part there because that's, that's a little confusing because religion may or may not be true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how is that playing into his idea of truth as you're seeing it? Well, it seems to me like, so remember, we've got the people who make the laws. We've mm -hmm. got the consuls who wage the war. And we've got the Senate with the purse strings. It seems to me that for the demos or the people to have a common, I'm not going to call it a moral project because Roman religion is not a moral project. It's right. a civic project but for them to have a common sense of what are we all doing together yeah polytheism provides that answer yeah. sufficiently such that you know if i show up with my goat on tuesday morning to worship to zeus and you're not there with your goat right. worshiping right alongside me i'm gonna wonder what happened to gil and his goat <laughs> are you eating the goat instead of sacrificing it yeah. and then we might have a conversation yeah so, so then Polybius is sort of seeing the value in religion being the shared project. And if you sort of reject that shared project, you don't understand the truth of how the demos works. Right. Is that what you're saying? That, that's I, sort of what you're seeing is the truth of the situation. I think that's what he's getting at there. Yes. All right. We thought about his sort of big picture. You have this problem with the cycles of history. That governments that are simple, that only use one of the styles of government, will inevitably sort of devolve into chaos. And Rome is this interesting example in history because it's combining hmm. those three forms and they're sort of pulling against each other. And there are various things that are in play such that the incentives are sort of lined up for each of those groups to work together for the good of the whole rather than disintegrate as as you have when you have a simple government. So that's kind of the Polybius's project in brief. What does what do you think this sort of way of looking at Roman government has to do with anything in terms of our sort of modern position, why should we think about sort of Polybius's insights into how the Roman state is put together? How does that help us now? Well, I, I think it's interesting because a political setup is really, I mean, on the one hand, people want to win, people want to be in charge, and often they'll do whatever it is they can so that they can obtain those sorts of controls. So it's interesting is when you have a system, it requires, I mean, just about all the people to at some level buy into the checks and balances that are proposed by the system so that no one person or one small oligarchy ends up sort of, you know, putting the hurt on everybody else for the sake of their own power acquisition. 
Now, it's interesting is that everyone has heard of this thing called the fall of Rome, which of course didn't happen in a day or even a month. But what we're seeing in a fall of an empire, I mean, Polybius isn't talking about the empire. I'm, I'm talking about like the empire, empire right. the empire proper, the one that the barbarians invade in the fifth century and right. install their own emperor there. I mean, what you start to see break down is an interest and invest in investing in the whole anymore, where people have been doing this for such a long time that they're really primarily self-interested. They're trying to ride their own fat pony into the sunset as far as they can before the whole thing collapses or falls apart. And is it inev inevitably going to fall apart? I would say I'm convinced that the answer is probably yes, though falling apart could look like a lot of different things. Sure. As it were, it's not necessarily a state of nature or chaos where people need like a strongman to emerge. But it seems to me that decisions that people make, people can make decisions about policies, how people vote. Are we voting for the good of the whole and what that could be? Or am I voting for my own self-interest mm -hmm. only? Is it possible that the two could be more deeply connected than I note? at first. And if I think a little bit further down the road, might I think differently about how I make a policy or a law or vote or something like that if I give it, you know, four generations of thought rather than 40 days. Right. Do you think Polybius's project is to sort of stand there and point at history and be like, hey, like, let's think about this longer term because that's how this thing is going to stick together rather than sort of the short term thinking that that might be sort of hap is is happening constantly <laughs> frankly sure know? sure i mean that's a great question i haven't read enough of his other 39 volumes to know sort sure. of what his <laughs> his general structure is it seems to me based on what i have read that he's mostly looking backward and saying like wow you guys like how did they do this right. i mean they beat carthage i mean it would be like jacksonville florida beating new york city right it just he's marveling at this and figuring out how exactly did this this take place. So is he proposing a way to sustain it indefinitely? That I couldn't say. Sure. But he is interested in the idea that, you know, most of the places around the world go through these, like you said, simple cycle governments. But Rome seems to be pretty stable, at least in the third century B.C., second century B.C. So it's anybody's guess. I don't know the answer. So do you think that the value of reading Polybius is it gives us that sort of longer term sort of perspective on things? We believe that the government we're a part of is worth preserving or something like that, that it that we have to take the long view in order to preserve that? Or is is there some other sort of moral? You were saying earlier that he wants moral lessons to be part of what he's doing. Does he want us to learn some other moral lesson from what he's putting together. I mean, I would say that I think part of it is he does want us to think about how we are interacting with governments and what that could possibly mean. I think he is interested in moral lessons. I mean, he talks in terms of, you know, I'm, I'm offering you practical or pragmatic history, as it were, something that if you study thoughtfully, you can take note of it. Though, I mean, for me, it always raises the question of sort of you know, is a human government like an anthill, for example, it just it has a natural expiration date, no, whether you have a mixed government or a simple government. And if it has a mixed, if it has sort of a shelf life, how should one think about that? And how could one think about that? So I mean, by contrast, I was 
thinking about what happened in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. which is, you know, monarchs for miles and miles right. and centuries right. and centuries. And you don't have a mixed constitution come up. I mean, really, until like, I guess you could say the first one comes out of the English Civil War. Yeah. Where you have a balance between the monarchy and the parliament. Sure. And, so it's sort of like, huh, that's that's kind of interesting. How come Europe went so long yeah. on a simple system and we're sitting here in America in the 21st century in a complex system? And right. how could we think about it? Yeah. So you think that part of the value of Polybius is thinking about the idea of a particular government having a shelf life. And how do we think about that? Do you have anything to, that you want to sort of say about that on reflecting about that idea, having read Polybius? Well, if someone thinks that a government has a shelf life, then one can think about what kind of shelf life that is and what can be used to prop things up or how to sustain it for a further period of time. And if it doesn't have a shelf life, if it's kind of like infinitely plastic or or renewable, how would that work and on, on what basis? What sorts of things do you need to introduce to reinvigorate said government if it can be reinvigorated and if it's eventually going to cycle over or have a revolution in the circular sense into you know something else what could that possibly look like so how to prepare economically how to think economically how to think socially morally what would we want to as communities think about or have in place or as families think about have in place or as voters think about and and have in place what sort what sorts of things should we be looking for from politicians in their you know promises or offers or programs or whatever that would would signal oh okay i get it you see that this thing is not a given that if enough of us decide that the rules aren't good then it can utterly fall apart mm-hmm. are you aware of how human beings think about what it is that they're doing and why. And based on how you think about it, do you have a grasp on reality that makes sense enough that I could say, yes, you should probably be making other decisions. Or you do not have a grasp on reality, which means you should not be making decisions of a certain sort. I mean, I know I'm talking in very general terms because I don't have a specific like, we should do this right now. Right. And this will guarantee blank because I, I simply don't know. Right. So you think so primarily the value of Polybius is that he's 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 stoking mm-hmm. a, a kind of thoughtfulness mm-hmm. about human nature and the nature of human society. Yes. That if we don't ever think about that, if we have just an assumption of it's like this and it's always like this regardless of what the circumstances are, then that could lead us to make the wrong sorts of decisions where, you know, if if we were in a society that, you know, could be upheld by certain things or or, you know, as you were saying, then we should then we should sort of if we don't ever study the sort of history that Polybius is interested in, then we're not going to know what those sorts of things are. Sure. I mean, to that end, we will not understand the distinctive psychology of a complex constitution and how it works and how it is perceived. So, I mean, we've been swimming in this water for a good, you know, 250 plus years. Mm -hmm. And so we're used to this pulling on that and that pulling on this. Mm -hmm. I mean, we really don't have any clue what would happen if X stopped pulling on Y totally. Right. We really don't have any idea what that would be like. So, I mean, we need folks from the past did have an idea of what that well, was yeah. like to illuminate that a little bit for us where they can. Absolutely. Because, I mean, there's no question that 
I mean, you add to man's kind of natural state of something like hunger, which is fairly fixed and fairly guaranteed and fairly concrete. You add to something like that a variable like man's greed or avarice, av avarice. Sort of like, well, why is it if we understand and can face that man wants more than he needs lots of times, but there are checks and balances to prevent things from kind of getting too avaricious or things of that sort. Like, I know that I think I would agree with you that thinking about Polybius and the historical psychology that he offers about a complex system is very beneficial to us mm -hmm. today to think about how we might make decisions even now. Well, Elliot, this has been a fascinating conversation. I think there is so much in this conversation that we will we will just have to sort of leave there and come back to it another time. Obviously, there are tremendous parallels between the Roman system and the American system hmm. that we touched on a little bit, just, just like <laughs> barely at all. <laughs> but that question is fascinating. You talked about this idea of general will, which is a Rousseauian. Yes. Sort yeah, of yeah. Rousseau develops it. And there are other views of the state of nature, as it were, in later philosophers. So hopefully at a future date, you can come back and we can talk more about some of the political thinking that's sort of inheriting Polybius yeah. in sort of the modern age and, and, and further on. Well, Elliot, thank you for coming and talking about Polybius. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. This has been a great conversation. If you guys have any comments or questions, you can interact with us by emailing us at podcasts at gutenberg.edu. I just want to take a moment and give a special thank you to Andy Weber. Andy has been completely invisible behind the scenes, kind of producing this podcast for us for this, these first sort of batch of episodes. But Andy's moving on and we just are so appreciative that he's done this. And thanks, Andy. We just we just want to say thank you, Andy. And we will be back in a couple of weeks to talk about more ideas and books that have shaped Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College.